live now on Facebook and letting participants into the Zoom webinar. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours, moved back to Sunday morning. Uh, we are starting our study of the Book of Ruth this morning. My name is Chris Holmes, and I am the scholar in residence at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And I'm co-hosting uh, with two extraordinary Hebrew Bible scholars. Uh, we share some interesting Princeton Seminary connections. Um, and so, Brennan, why don't you go ahead next and then introduce our guest host this morning. Great. I'm Brennan Breed, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary, and I uh, work at uh, First Presbyterian Church Marietta as a theologian in residence, and I am so pleased to introduce our wonderful guest scholar today, Dr. Elaine James, uh, who is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, who works in biblical poetry and uh, art in the ancient world. Uh, she works on issues of land, uh, ecology, gender. Uh, she's all over the map in terms of interests and writing um, and uh, publications. Uh, but she uh, also has written a beautiful book um, that I absolutely love, uh, which is called uh, Landscapes of the Song of Songs for Oxford Press. Um, she is just uh, turning in a manuscript for a new book that will help people learn and learn how to read biblical poetry, kind of a handbook to biblical poetry. So I'm looking forward to assigning that to students. Um, and uh, also uh, has uh, recently finished uh, a co-edited book, uh, which introduces people to uh, particular examples of how to read biblical poetry um, in, a, in, in a style of close reading. So kind of reading less like a technician and more like someone who is looking at a work of art. Uh, so she is pioneering uh, uh, several different uh, avenues in biblical studies. But uh, the, the thing that I uh, really appreciate her being here for today was gonna, she's going to help us think about the biblical narratives and poetry um, as art forms. Um, so kind of Bible as literature is one way to think about this, um, but it's much, it's much more than at least uh, I, I've encountered in terms of other uh, forms of kind of Bible as literature, which is like, this is a plot. Um, Elaine <laughs> takes it a lot further than that, uh, and uh, we'll be uh, excited to hear from her today. Uh, so Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it is a real honor and pleasure to have you here. And uh, thank you for taking your time uh, to help out um, with office hours. Um, and let me just uh, start off by asking you, we have a, a typical question that we begin with, which is, uh, if you are going to introduce us to at least a, a part of your um, hermeneutical lens or some of your assumptions about how to read scripture, um, uh, what, what would some of those be? Uh, you know, how, if you're kind of introducing the Bible to people and you've got to put a couple things on the table first, uh, what are some of those things that, that help us to read scripture? Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation to be here. I'm just delighted. Um, and thank you for your kind introduction as well. So my theological uh, presuppositions when I come to reading the Bible are, first of all, I would say um, that it's worthwhile. And that's not a given for a lot of contemporary readers, even for a lot of church readers. Honestly, I encounter a lot of people who think I, you know, they love the tradition or they love being a, you know, part of the, um, the Christian tradition. And yet they just don't think that there's much that's recoverable within, especially the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And um, so the idea that it's worthwhile that we might return to it and find it as many readers have before us, um, a useful resource, um, as well as I think a source of um, what I would just use a really affective term of source of delight. It's a, it's a place to go back to, to find ourselves formed. Um, and that being said, I also think it's, it's literature. And so that's also an assumption that I bring to the text. And when I say literature, I mean, it's written mostly in narratives and poetry. In fact, way more poetry than we often give it credit for. So we tend to think, people tend to think of the Bible as, as didactic literature, as literature that you read and then you extract a kind of message or meaning that should teach you something. It's an instruction. Um, but if we take the, the mode seriously, we get a lot of stories and we get a lot of poetry. And those two forms can certainly teach us things, um, but they are also inexhaustibly, I would say, compli complicated, complex. These are texts that are rich and layered and um, that repay coming back to again and again. Um, so those are two sort of guiding assumptions that I have when I read biblical texts that we might continue to pay close attention and closer attention yet 
to them as art forms to think about how we might be shaped by them, not because they have an easily extractable moral all the time. In fact, lots of times they don't have an easily extractable, extractable moral. And so it causes us to come back to the text again and again to be renewed by the questions themselves. So a lot of people, when they read a poem or something, uh, you know, will say something like, well, yeah, sure, but what does it mean? Like, why is there all this extra stuff that I have to like work through to get to the meaning of the poem? Like, just give me the meaning, right? Or like a narrative, you know, like, well, I mean, if, if like on the Book of Ruth, it just tells me that like, I should be a nice person. Like, just tell me I should be a nice person. Let's get away with all, I mean, why, why all this kind of frilly, you know, extra stuff that I have to like take off to get to the truth, right? And one of the things I love about what you teach us about poetry um, uh, is that, that the, the kind of extraneous stuff that we think kind of like is surrounding some sort of moral or, truth or something that's like the real thing you know in fact like the work of art itself and the experience of the work of art are, are the the thing in most cases right i mean is there uh uh is there like a uh, you know when, when you teach uh, introductory classes is there like an example that you give or is there i mean i i remember like that billy collins poem that anna carter florence uh, will assign often at columbia seminary where it's like people think that like you know reading a poem is like extracting like a, a confession out of a witness or something right. like that you know <laughs> Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's true. I feel like people are often irritated by poems and by poets. Like, why are they making it so hard um, when they could just tell me what they what they mean, right? So oftentimes students will talk about like, well, what the author's trying to say. But in fact, what the author is trying to say is exactly what the what the author has said, right? It's what the text emphatically is. Um, so when you think about, for example, the Song of Songs, um, on sort of a simplistic level, you could say, well, this is a poem about love, right? Um, but if this is the point to just celebrate love, someone could just say, let's all celebrate love. <laughs> and then we can all move on with our day. But what the poet has offered instead is like, oh, sorry, did I interrupt you there? Well, I was just saying, yeah, get a nice t-shirt. You don't need, you know, chapters upon chapters. Just celebrate love. That's all. There you go. That's all love you is need cool. So, <laughs> And there's truth to that, right? You wouldn't be wrong to say that that's a meaning of the Song of Songs. And yet what the, poet what the poem does is to, I think one thing that the poem does, and a lot of artwork does, is to actually change our relationship to time, right? Because mm -hmm. we're asked to do something that isn't easy and quick, right? We're asked to do something that takes time. And so when you spend um, eight chapters, reading eight chapters of poetry in the Song of Songs about love and all kinds of sort of related dimensions of that, including love of, um, love of landscape, as I've argued in my book. Um, in fact, what you're asked to do is take a different stance toward your experience, your temporal experience, right? You have to mm -hmm. slow down and you aren't given a, a really straight pathway through something but instead you're asked to experience something right so it's sort of a more circuitous perhaps um slower experience of of the text and slower experience therefore also of time and um the richness of that and in delighting in what the richness offers but the richness of that experience of reading offers um is something that is i i think fundamentally valuable yeah, and in our, in our own kind of day and age, the idea of like productivity, like you got to just make as much stuff as you can as quickly as you can. And also kind of like, even theologically, like how the often maybe subliminally, maybe, maybe uh, you know, sort of outright, the church will say, you know, uh, Christianity is mainly about knowing stuff or mm -hmm. no, having like having these like particular truths. Um, but if, if it really the truth of the, of the entire of our entire lives is something more like a relationship, um, a relationship to our space, uh, to the created world, to each other, to God. Um, yeah, that's going to like require a different kind of sensibility, right? And then like just trying to kind of get as quickly as we can to like the truth that will fix something or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, that's, I, I, that's what I, I really have loved because I am someone who's guilty of that. Like when I was in seminary, I was like reading poems. I was like, geez, get to the point. Like <laughs> I got work to do, you know, <laughs> I, what am I doing? Reading the Psalm. I mean, praise God, praise God in the heavens, praise God. The high, I mean, geez, just, you know, get, you know, uh, but, but it, as, as I've gotten older, I mean, I really have, um, I've, I've got really appreciated this lesson that I think poetry more than other forms of art teaches us, which is that, yeah, we, uh, the more we can slow down and kind of look at our own lives and uh, really look carefully at our relationships and other people around us and the land around us, the more we can like slow down and actually kind of pay attention to the, 
to, to what exists or whatever. I don't know. It's kind of it sounds mystical almost, but like that that is much more um, kind of the the truth of the world than any kind of summed up statement can make it. Anyway, that's why. So I've really really appreciated your Song of Songs book for just like you know taking the, uh, something that I've usually been like, oh, why is that in the Bible? Or or reduced it to like it's just about love, you know. Um, uh, but slowing it down and, and and there's so much. It's so rich. There's so many connections in there. Um, but Ruth, I think we can we can think about that way too, right? I mean, instead of reducing it to this tale of like, you know, faithfulness is great or something, um, but really, really paying attention to the details in the story, which kind of open it up for us in a way. Um, but yeah, so like if, uh, you know, it, on, on that, 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 uh, that topic about a kind of narratives, like, can you tell us a bit about like Hebrew literary art, you know, and I guess poetry or, or narrative, but like how, how does Hebrew poetry or liter or, or narrative art work? Is it, is it just kind of like, our own narratives and poetry today? Or are there things that are kind of distinctive about it? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, one of the interesting things that scholars have noted about Hebrew narrative versus Hebrew poetry is the sort of different way that they represent reality. So in biblical Hebrew narrative, you often get um, a pretty spare accounting of stories. So you get really minimalistic details. We don't often hear, for example, about what characters look like or what they're thinking. We don't get a lot of um, narrative. Uh, we don't often get a narrator who tells us those kinds of, um, of details. Instead, there are a lot of gaps. We get sort of the crucial details and then a lot that, to use um, a famous phrase from Eric Auerbach, right? These texts are fraught with background. It's all in the background. And so there's a lot that we have to reconstruct. And the famous example of this is Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac, right? Where what do we not know in that story? A lot, right? <laughs> Among the things we don't know is what is Abraham's interior experience? Like what do we, and so we fill in the gaps a lot and we make meaning of the story in part through that experience of, um, of interacting with the text, of inquiring of it, of filling in details that we wish we could know. And so there's this sort of, um, there's this sort of like opacity to biblical narrative that is really strategically used, I think, for um, developing the stories, but also for um, sort of tantalizing us into the stories, right? Thinking about how they continue, have, how they might continue to mean. Hebrew poetry is really different from that. It too tends to be a pretty short form. Um, it's very, but it's much more dense. So it's densely wrought and we get a lot more um, sort of explorations of emotion and interiority in Hebrew poetry that are almost totally lacking in biblical narrative. And in fact, often um, you'll get in biblical narrative, a poem inset at, at a moment that sort of helps us to see what's going on inside of a character's mind where we wouldn't see it otherwise. Um, like a thought bubble or something. It's kind of, yeah, that's nice. It's like a thought bubble, um, except it's an extremely, usually sort of ornate thought bubble, right? Like it's not just like a flash of consciousness, although it is that. It also sort of is a pause in the story that draws us in in a deeper and different way. Um, and you see that actually here in the book of Ruth, right? You don't get a lot about um, what Ruth and Naomi are experiencing, except we do get a couple of texts in chapter one um, where we do, right? Where we get Ruth's proclamation of loyalty to Naomi, which is given in these parallelistic couplets. And um, we get no Naomi's um, sort of uh, complaint, right? About, <laughs> about her lot in life, about her name, that... Um, that sort of shed a different insight on a story that otherwise doesn't give us a lot of that kind of interiority. There's other things that poetry does as well, right? It's a very, um, it's, it's pretty dense in terms of its stylistics, right? It's mostly written in parallelistic lines. It tends to be pretty short, but like, um, but densely crafted, right? So you get like not a lot of words, but when you get them, they're like often playful, uh, playful sound play, word play. You get um, a lot of those kinds of features that you see in other bodies of poetry as well. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot in the Book of Ruth that sort of lends itself to thinking about how the literature is, um, is operating on a complex level. And you get, you know, the story's set up in this cool way where you get these four tidy chapters, almost like four acts of a play. And you foreground in the first three chapters, the experience of Naomi, and then chapters two and three are these 
um, pretty tightly organized plot lines where they start with Naomi and Ruth hatching a plan and then like setting it out and, you know, setting it into action and seeing what happens. And then you get the same thing in chapter three, Ruth and Naomi hatching a plan and then like setting it um, into action and seeing what happens. So there's this like a lot of um, a sense of very crafted art to the whole thing. And um, I mean, in the, in the literature too, I mean, in the narrative too, not just in the poetry, but in the narrative too, you get a lot of like wordplay. So um, they have to leave Bethlehem, which Hebrew Bethlehem, right, is the, the house of bread because there is a famine. There's no bread, there's no food, right? Um, and the names in the book of Ruth too sort of play with their various meanings. There's a lot of kind of um, cleverness, you might say, or craftedness to the book um, that repays kind of thinking about how do these things interact with each other and create a, a richer, a richer experience. That is so cool. Yeah. And um, uh, is, is there like a, um, oh, and just for, for folks who don't, maybe don't, don't know that, that word parallelism that you, that you used is um, like kind of a, I mean, a lot of introductions to Hebrew poetry begin and end there, which is sad because there's a lot more to do than parallelism. But, but just like, can you give us an example of what that means? It's kind of like the catchword for a lot of what people know about biblical poetry, but it's, it's often kind of, you know, kind of skipped over or, or glossed over a bit. So like, what is, what is parallelism? Yeah, parallelism um, is like something that's written, is a poem that's written in, in couplets, right, in two lines. So parallelism is, if you think about it just in the most general terms, it's a kind of repetition. And so you can see parallelism enacted at lots of different levels, you know, parallelistic words, words that are repeated, parallelistic um, ideas, um, parallelistic couplets. You get all kinds of varieties of parallelism, but usually when it's used in biblical poetry, it's meant to say that in biblical poetry, you often get a line and then what feels like um, the same line again, <laughs> but usually stated in slightly different words. And you could see it even, I just have my Bible here open to the book of Ruth. You see it in the oh, yeah. poem that Ruth uses, that, you, that Ruth speaks um, in verse 16. Look at the first lines of this. So this is Ruth 1.16. But Ruth said, and then our poem begins, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Okay. So right there, you have a parallelistic couplet. Do not press me to leave you. So she says, don't make me leave you. Right. And then what does she say? Or to turn back from following you. Right. What she just said the same thing again. Don't make me leave you. <laughs> but yeah. it's sort of stated in different words. And that, that form, that sort of like two step you know, one step forward, but it's sort of a two-step forward thing, happens throughout the poem. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God, right? You get this sort of, um, this sort of like redoubled effect um, that it too, I think, is temporal. It changes our experience of time, right? Because you sort of get a statement of something, but if it were enough to just say it one time, we would be say it one time and be done with it. And yet the art of biblical poetry tends to um, make us sort of sit, and it's maybe a function, I'm not sure about this, it may be a reflex of kind of an oral background of some of this poetry, but certainly it is a stylistic device that biblical Hebrew poetry prefers, um, which is to say something and then to say, um, and James Kugel says, it's like saying A and then what's more B, right? There's a little bit of a sense of, I'll add a little bit to this in the second line. Um, but, um, but the overall effect is kind of like, again, slowing us down. We, we stay with an idea a little bit longer than we might if we were simply recounting it um, in, you know, everyday speech or even in prose. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. And, and I, I uh, asked you this earlier and, uh, you know, if that, if, that, if that was a great example, we can stop there. But is there an example, I mean, maybe from the song or or a, a psalm or something else. Can you just like give us a short, I don't know, like test drive of a poem, just help us to see a little bit of uh, some of the, the the kind of artistry of biblical poetry in action, or or should we stop there with Ruth one? <laughs> um, that, well, there's a lot to choose from. That's a great question. So um, I think that what you could, where could we go to for this? <laughs> I apologies for my, my, I was in the block, all of a sudden the sun came blindingly into me. So I've been, I've been moving my curtain. Every oh, no, no, no worries yeah. at all. Um, well, I think that like, if you go to, um, if you think about like Exodus, right? In Exodus 15, Ooh, nice. we get two poems. Um, one is sort of the, you know, usually called the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. Um, and then we get the Song of Miriam in Exodus 15, 21. So like the first uh, 18 or 19, yeah, the first 18 verses are this um, 
poem that's attributed to Moses. And then we get a little snippet of a poem, the Song of Miriam. And um, you can see examples of, um, of parallelism here. You get um, a lot of interesting stuff here. I just want to call your attention. If you look at, Exod at Exodus 15 um, verses, seven through eight, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries, you sent out your fury, it consumed them like stubble. So this is, um, the narrative setting is of course, um, tells, is, is set like at the edge of the Red Sea, right? After they've had this victory over, um, over um, Pharaoh's armies. And then we get this, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Um, this is pretty archaic language here. And so it's sort of, even in Hebrew, it's, um, it's a little bit difficult, but you can see parallelism at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea, right? So you get this sort of threefold descriptive moment that celebrates um, in these like profoundly mythological terms, um, this experience of the Exodus. And so this kind of like dwelling with the descriptive moment, you don't get that very much in the biblical narrative in general, but we have it here in the poem in a way that um, kind of offers us an opportunity to like, to dwell with that image, which is like fantastic and terrible and strange and mythological, right? You know, you have, you have this, I, I think this imagery is just so outsized, right? It makes you think in like massive terms. That's and so then cool. if, you, if you look ahead to the Song of Miriam, I'll just um, point this out. A lot of scholars think that this is actually the older version of the song that's been um, sort of taken up and might, some people might even say co-opted by the voice of Moses. <laughs> but we have here, the prophet Miriam, Aaron's, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. So in this moment, I think you also get a little bit of a window into the, um, the excesses of, of Hebrew poetry, which are um, probably a lot of these had some kind of setting, some kind of liturgical setting, and probably some kind of musical setting. So here Miriam is singing um, and also calling to um, her audience to sing as well. So there's a communal and probably like call and response dimension to this as a liturgical practice. Um, and she's also taking up a musical instrument. And so one can imagine as you are thinking about the experience of these poems for us, we're often doing this, what I'm doing right now, right? Which is like me alone looking yeah. at my text and thinking about it, or maybe singing or reciting them in a liturgical context. Um, but for the ancient poets, like, or for the ancient people, most of whom are not literate, the experience of poetry is, is very different from that, right? And so we have to think about the kinds of excesses of meaning that are possible in, um, in oral settings, as opposed to simply like the practices of private reading that we're so accustomed to um, in the West in the modern era. Wow, that's uh, and uh, that uh, that in itself is a little bit of a plug for the handbook for biblical Hebrew uh, that will be coming out from Oxford Press. Hopefully, sometime next year, the or you know, in, in in some time after that. But thank you so much for just helping us get a sense for poetry. It's it's such an undervalued art form, at least I think it is in in our modern context. Um, it seems like in the ancient world, this was like a primary form of entertainment, but also of theology. I mean, just thinking of how theology it was done through poetry. Um, in the ancient world uh, uh, seems pretty cool. Uh, Chris, I, I've been talking a whole lot uh, and Elaine has been talking some uh, like from New Testament, right? Yeah, well, what you got? Like, I feel so very left out, uh, <laughs> so very left out in this conversation. Um, I'm glad that you've, you've given me a, a chance to say something. No, um, you know, the thing that, that struck me, uh, Elaine, as you were talking um, was, was actually, I have spent way too much time with this treatise called On the Sublime by, by Longinus. And he, he talks about the way in which literature can do the sort of stop the temporal dynamics, or he even uses the religious language of ecstasy. It takes you out of yourself, um, allows you to sort of stand outside of yourself and to witness something else. And so when you took us to the poetry of Exodus and the descriptive language, it is, it is a, um, it is sort of an ecstatic moment that gets you outside of yourself um, for something other than just the didactic uh, uh, purpose. And it, um, the, the, our tendency to 
uh, sort of want to find a single meaning or like what's the moral of the story rather than to experience it, you know, also reminds me of another treatise from, from my period, right? Thousands of years after what we're talking about with Ruth. Um, but Plutarch, the philosopher and writer Plutarch has this really fun treatise called On How to Read Poetry. And he basically says, like, basically read it for moral formation and don't get, you know, don't get uh, so scared by all of these immoral things that the Greco-Roman gods are doing, you know? And, and so he, he's really afraid. He wants to actually sort of put a fence around um, the tendency that literature could have to bring people outside of themselves. And, you know, so he really wants to temper that reading process. And it's interesting to think of the role of the church um, in, in, either encouraging us to read narratives as narratives or or not and and your your comments at the very beginning of our session about it's worthwhile studying this um reminds me that you know we have four gospels and i get so frustrated as a new testament scholar when um students don't want to even acknowledge that there's four different stories about jesus and that these are these are different. And if we, we just sort of, you know, say, well, they, they all basically say the same thing. My response is, is why are we even reading scripture? Like, if you don't want to be delighted by it, if you don't want to be surprised by it, if you don't want to be troubled by it. Um, you know, if, if all the book of Acts is, is how the, this Jewish renewal movement moves from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. Well, heck, that's a lot quicker than reading 28 chapters of narrative. Um, but if you slow down and you sit with it and you come back to it again and again and again, um, I think that there is, uh, this is the place where I would say like the Bible is profound in its meaning. There, there's a profundity to it that we come back to it, but we can't come back to it as a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. We come back to it as poetry and prose and, and narrative, um, uh, trying to be transformed by it. Um, but, but some of that transformation happens because it is narrative. Um, and, and this, uh, so I, I do see some, some connections, even though yeah. the narrative of the gospels or of acts is, um, is different. Uh, I, I do think that there's some similarities, uh, and in particular the role of speech, you know, when Elaine, again, when you were talking about Ruth's poem in, in Ruth one, this does give us some, some of the internal process, maybe not you know, Ruth was really hungry and she wasn't confident about what she was going to say, but she said it anyways. Um, she was delirious. She didn't know what she was saying. <laughs> so we don't maybe get all of that, but, but it's, you know, um, the, the sort of Greco-Roman uh, theorists of history say, you know, characters in, in histories, when they speak, they reveal what kind of character they are. They, 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 so when, when Peter speaks in Acts or when Paul speaks in Acts, they, they have a revelatory function. They tell us something about these characters. And so I think we see that as well in, in Ruth. I like what you were saying there. Actually, if I can just connect back to your, the idea of, of ecstasy, ecstasis, right? Getting, being out of your place. It makes me think about a couple of things. The first is the Song of Songs, right? So I think that this function of trying to, um, trying to sort of uh, put a kind of, container around that experience is absolutely the case in the history of song songs interpretation right so the opening line let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine right um what is that if not sort of an ecstatic experience right it is um absolutely not pointing us to any exterior meaning right but rather conveying this uh sort of experience that is um it's, it's profound, right? It's this profound erotic experience, which is sort of like if you sit with that, um, can be sort of challenging. And so um, both the church and the synagogue were sort of concerned about this and, and wanted to really point to how this text um, also draws us into this like broader web of meaning. And so they sort of like leaned into that dimension of interpretation, especially to say this is a mystical meaning um, and specifically a meaning that is allegorical, right? It is the sense of scripture that is deeper than what we see on the surface. And I think like that's a, that's a perfectly 
a perfectly legitimate way to approach the text because it points us to this very real experience in literature, which is that the texts always are sort of looking and in different directions and drawing us in different directions. Um, and yet in the case of the Song of Songs, I think that was sort of this sort of suspicion of human eroticism has within, um, within religious communities also sort of led to a, a, a reduction of meaning, right? It has to be only about God. It can't be about human love. Instead of being able to have a, um, this broadening view that somehow um, our understandings of human love give us a window into the divine and vice versa. God is the source of all love, right? This is um, a sort of twofold or multi-step kind of um, way of thinking about scripture's excesses of meanings as opposed to sort of trying to um, contain it. That's so cool. And also like, yeah, the experience of love is something that like you can feel, but also if you, if you don't kind of sit back and I don't know, like process it or try to actually experience it, you know, think about it as, you know, you can kind of take it for granted and lose it in a way. I mean, it's, it strikes me that like during this time of COVID, um, you know, you hear over and over again, people saying, hey, look, um, you know, people think I would feel so much better if I knew the day this would end or something. And people are like, actually, that wouldn't necessarily help so much. What would help you is like a sense of um, mindfulness and presence right now in the midst of this, you know, and I just see all this um, reinforcement, like in the newspapers and, you know, uh, here, like, here's an app for mindfulness that'll actually help you during this time, you know, and it strikes me that poetry is this um, invitation to like sit with with your with ourselves or sit you know with our thoughts and our feelings and process them in a way with kind of a guide you know um like trying to to reflect on love and wine and the the flavors of wine and the feeling that you get after a glass of wine just kind of thinking about that and love and so on 30 minutes with that a day would probably help me a whole lot, um, I would guess. Um, but, you know, the, the connection to the mystics, too, and the idea of like a reflective prayer life, um, kind of a rich, deep interior life, that, that poetry is an invitation to have that. And, um, yeah, that's something that, like, I, I, at least I feel like our world kind of um, discourages us from having just with the kind of forms of... Well, the prominence of the lament tradition within the biblical poetry is a nice example of this, right? Like, you get these texts that are just filled with complaining and, and bemoaning and... Um, um, really articulating the depth of human despair. And that's something that's culturally not, um, not very, well, it's not like looked well on in our culture. We don't create a lot of spaces for that. And yet the prominence of it within the biblical tradition ex itself sort of suggests that this kind of living with and through grief requires this kind of both articulation, but also this sort of just patient presence. Your, your idea too about this, like, what does it mean to just sit with something? It just reminded me of something my five-year-old has been saying a lot to me lately, which I say, I love you. You know, you tell your kids you love them. And he says to me almost every time now, he says, mom, you don't have to tell me that every day. <laughs> right. And he's sort of like, if the point of saying, I love you, right, is simply to convey this kind of meaning, then why would you have to say it every day, right? I mean, that's like, that would be, it would be silliness. So my, my five-year-old is sort of picking up on this, like, if the point is simply meaning, um, then why, why reiterate it? Why say it over and over again? Why say it in different ways? Why write a thousand love poems about it, you know? And yet there is this impulse in us that it seems to me is not identical to the conveyance of meaning, right? Even in that act of telling someone you love that you love them, um, is this kind of like necessity of the moment to say it again or say it anew or experience it oneself again, be reminded of it in perhaps richer and more broadening ways. Um, so I think poetry is one thing that helps us do that. And the scripture of poetry models that for us, right? It's mm -hmm. not enough to just say the thing, right? It's something about creating an experience or living in a relationship or, um, or like enriching our experience of the present moment, right? How do we expand our understanding of what we are going through at any given moment? Part of the way we do that is through these like artful reconfigurations and re-experiences um, that mm. help us to see with new eyes. Like uh, like Naomi, um, you know, saying "Call me Mara" uh, at, at the end of chapter one, two, her poem that that is a kind of reflection on her lament. And I've even heard people say, "Oh boy, she's just kind of complaining right here," you know. <laughs> but but if we if you look at it that way, that, that you know, this this is an artful reimagining of her own life and an honest 
uh, uh, interaction with her life rather than trying to get over it or get past it or so on. To really give full voice um, to what she's feeling at that moment is itself theology. It is, um, you know, her own pastoral care. It is, uh, you know, it is meaningful in and of itself without having to reduce to some kind of point or something. Yeah, that's so cool. And I mean, I don't know, there's like hardly a more timely thing. I don't know about you all, but everyone that I know has been freaking out about a lot of things lately. Um, and, uh, you know, reflecting on, you know, gratefully for a lot of things too. Um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away. Suddenly people have been reflecting on her life, her legacy, her meaning uh, of, of, of her career and so on. Um, but also <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of nervousness in the world right now um, that this is adding to as well. Uh, but, even, you know, it, I even feel like people kind of jumped to the, the the political kind of game, which is, you know, politics is important and so on. I'm not one of those people who says we shouldn't talk about politics, but like, I feel like a lot of people jumped right over the whole, like, Hey, let's like experience this person's life and, and reimagine it and think about it and try to try to uh, um, put it into words as a way of gratefulness and her dying also, uh, you know, right, right on uh, the Jewish new year, right on Yom Kippur, you know, there's like traditions about the kind of uh, the, the legends die right around Yom Kippur because uh, you know, God was kind of figuring out the, the calendar for next year about who's going to die. And God like lets the people live as long as they can until the new year. And that's how you can tell, you know, the, the, the great kind of righteous people, you know, there's all this cool stuff you could talk about with, you know, but it, that, that's just one kind of thing in the news right now that was thinking that helped me think about that. But, just like living our lives, I don't know, poetically, like, it seems like something people used to do that, right? But like, we don't, we don't, I don't know, I, I at least don't think that way. And I, I, I want to. Yeah. So I have, I think, I think that this will eventually transition us into a discussion of some more of, of Ruth and some introductory matters. Um, uh, and I, I think it relates uh, to, to Brennan, what you just said, but I'm, I'm interested, uh, Elaine, in the, this concept of, of gap filling, the, the idea of filling in gaps in the narrative. And I think one of the consequences of the like, quick get to the meaning is a reluctance to, to fill in those gaps, right? It, it, it's seen as like a, a, a sin to, if it's not, if I can't find it in the text of Ruth, I can't, I can't do it. And yet there's a whole interpretive tradition that is much more playful and imaginative in filling in gaps. And I'm thinking of, of Jewish tradition, or I'm thinking of uh, Dr. Will Gaffney's work with Woman of Midrash. And, um, and so I wonder if you have any advice about, um, about the limits maybe of gap filling or, or how gap filling, how we're, if we attend to the ways in which we fill gaps, that can be a productive process, that can be a generative process. Um, because with Ruth, there's going to be a lot of places where uh, where we will fill in the gap, where we will fill, fill, fill in like, oh, Ruth must have done this because of this reason, or Naomi must have said this for this reason. Um, and so I wonder if you have any sort of uh, recommendations about, about gap filling um, and uh, the playfulness maybe of, of doing so. Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, I think that we are always doing some gap filling, whether we know it or not, right? And there are a lot of... Um, and I think this is a good moment, and I think that um, my guess would be that we're in a moment of social awareness that is um, significant enough that that people, I think, are beginning to think about what are the assumptions that I take for granted? What are the assumptions I make? What are the things I take for granted? And um, that's, I think, always an important an important first step for an interpreter, right? Because people will interpret even the characters of Ruth and Naomi very differently um, based on a certain set of assumptions that they may or may not even be aware of. So if you look at their dynamic, even in chapter one, right? Um, Naomi says to both um, Orpah and Ruth, like, right, turn back from, I can't help you, go home, go back to your people. And Orpah, they both weep and Orpah says, all right. And Ruth says, you know, no, and then again, no, and then she gives this beautiful speech. And then the text says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her, right? So the text actually tells us very little about that interaction that's useful for thinking for us, um, for thinking about um, exactly like what this dynamic is like. And you can imagine this in all kinds of different ways, right? So is Naomi irritated with Ruth? Right? Is Ruth doing this out of an act of, of devotion, of faithfulness, or is this an act of desperation? What do we know about Ruth 
um, about Ruth's background, nothing, right? We know nothing at all. And so what do we assume are her motivations for going back with her mother-in-law? So even in that dynamic right there, and I think a lot of um, sort of pretty pious, faithful interpretations of this book want to say Ruth is doing this out of devotion, right? Devotion to loyalty uh, and loyalty to her mother-in-law that is a model of faithfulness. And again, and faithfulness does get talked about in this book. And so that's one very viable um, interpretation. But if you are... It, if you're bringing this a set of assumptions that suggests that Ruth has other options and that she's motivated by care for Naomi, then that's absolutely viable. But another interpretation is also other interpretations are also possible, right? right. I mean, the setting is a setting of essentially like ecological disaster, right? This is a famine and um, it's driven, um, it's driven Naomi away into Moab, right? And we know, all we know about Ruth is that she um, married Naomi's daughter, but we don't know like why she's so resistant to going back home. We don't know like what her options are or what her, you know, financial viability is, right? We're in, we're within a kinship based family structure where that's the economic structure. And so the question of the future for each of these women is very uncertain, but they're um, at least Ruth's background is very much unknown. So our, our assumptions, I think the sort of imaginative midrashic, like at, like seeing where the gaps are and beginning to speculate or beginning to draw out from ourselves what we think might be going on in this text and why, I think is like a really helpful way of um, not only examining ourselves, but also like bringing new questions to bear on the text. Mm. And um, and yet, at the same time, we also have to be uh, very aware of what those assumptions are, because if we're not, um, we well, there's always a risk, of course, of projecting ourselves onto the text or into the text. It's not always a bad thing, um, and it can be very much um, an, uh, an opening. I think this is one thing that the, the sort of reticence of biblical stories do, is to draw us into them, so that's productive. And yet we have to sort of balance that this is a circuitous way of saying we have to balance that also with some like self-scrutiny about what our assumptions are. What is it that we're bringing to the text? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems, it seems even the, the possibility of a text like this, if we're, if we're reading with our whole selves, if we're, if we're bringing that, that a text like this should open us up into an exploration of when, when have we felt, you know, ecological desolation? When have we, have we felt untimely death? When have we felt, um, a sense of abandonment by God. Like, again, I think, um, not to say that, that our story is then Ruth's story or is Naomi's story, but that, that seems to be something that a text like this invites us to do. It, it welcomes us to, to read with our full selves, to say, I wonder what it would have been like um, to be in, in this, you know, this kind of context, in this cultural moment, facing these sorts of challenges. What, what would I have made? What kind of decisions would I have made? And they, again, um, doing so with self-scrutiny and with, you know, with, with some care, uh, but another way to get sort of into the text and out of, uh, you know, our, our, our moment, one way of lingering with the text, I guess. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, what, one of the um, uh, aspects of Ruth that might be helpful when we kind of set the table, um, and Elaine, you already pointed this out in a way, but just to make it more explicit might be helpful, but the, the, the kind of genre of Ruth. I mean, one of the things about literature studies, which can be helpful for us, um, or sometimes people can get really into the details of this and it can become unhelpful, um, but is the study of genre. And uh, the, in biblical studies, we call this form criticism sometimes, but in, 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 when you talk about it in terms of literature, it can be really helpful to say like, what kind of literature am I reading? So like when you read Genesis 1, is this a science textbook? No, you know, it's an ancient liturgy probably or kind of poem um, uh, or poetic narrative um, about uh, the origins of the cosmos from this ancient cosmological perspective. You know, it, taking that in, in mind helps us to kind of avoid, I don't know, unhelpful, unproductive questions or questions that kind of get us off the track of the text, like what were the quarks and neutrinos in Genesis 1? Um, but so what genre of literature will we be looking at when we look at Ruth? And um, like, how do we read this? Like, what, what is it? What, what, what type of literature is this? And, and how do we engage it well? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Well, um, it, it, it's setting is, it's, well, it's short for one thing, right? Four chapters. So that's a clue as to what kind of text it is. Um, and it also, it, you know, in its first lines, it sort of announces what kind of story it is. In the days when the judge is judged, right? There's this kind of like once upon a time almost quality of the opening of this story. And both of these things um, point us to the possibility that, and because it unfolds as a narrative and like, as we've suggested already, sort of an artfully constructed one, a lot of scholars have said, this is, um, this is some kind of short story, right? It's a, it's a probably, maybe, have, maybe it has some origins in folklore, maybe it's a traditional tale, um, but the way that it's constructed is it's constructed as a story, a short story. And so it sort of draws us into a fictive moment, a fictive world. And when I say fictive, I don't mean fictive as in fact versus fiction, but merely to say, I don't think the story is so much interested in telling us a, a history per se, as in drawing us into the drama of these two women's experience. And um, so in that sense, in, in the Jewish ordering uh, of the canon, this is classed with the ketuvim, right? The writings that are at the end of the book, um, where we also find, for example, the story of Esther, which shares some of these, some commonalities um, with the book of Ruth in its kind of fictive dimensions. We might think about Jonah too, as one of the biblical texts that also has some of these characteristics. It too is a short book that is, um, doesn't seem to be so much interested in recounting a history as in telling a really good story and a story that um, draws us in and is put to very interesting purposes as well. Um, so that's some of the, that's some of how I would describe, I think it's kind of a useful way of thinking about it, right? How we encounter the story of Ruth is sort of the terms on which we might encounter um, any short story that we read, right? Um, as we think about and are drawn into the rich experience of these two pretty marginal women sort of teetering at the brink of survival. Wow. And, you know, I, I liked how you earlier also said it kind of these, there's like some tight connections between like there's some foreshadowing in the beginning and the beginning and end, like the, it, it, it kind of, there's a pattern to it and so on. So if we read with that in mind, it might help us see some things that are evocative and productive too. That's great. Uh, but um, you mentioned women. Uh, this is a biblical text that is a bit unusual in compared to much of the canon because it focuses on the lives of two marginal women. Um, and what, what do you make of that? Uh, why, why is the book of Ruth, um, I mean, I, 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 when I teach uh, biblical Hebrew, I often use the book of Ruth, um, and we translate a lot of it. Uh, uh, this, this semester we'll get through three, I think, chapters, but in part because there's a lot of uh, verbs that are uh, feminine verbs. Um, it's one of the few consistent examples of this. I don't know if it exactly passes what they call the Bechtel test, you know, two women <laughs> talking to each other and not about a man. I, there, there's an argument about that. But what does it mean to have this story about two marginal women? Yeah, um, well, it's pretty awesome. I think that um, there have been a, a lot of feminist interpreters who said this is a pretty big deal and we should pay attention to it, right? It's not only a story about two marginal women, which is exceptional among the biblical texts, which are pretty androcentric, they're pretty male-centered on the whole. Um, but it also is a book that really features, uh, in an interesting way, the actions of women as well, right? They're not just sort of pawns in um, a larger plot, as, as women often are in biblical narratives, actually. Um, but rather, they are um, they're agents, right? So the actions that happen um, are not are not actions of divine fiat, right? You don't see the deity intervening in pre in really profound and um, you know, parting the waters of the Red Sea sort of ways in this book. Instead, what you see is a lot of, um, a lot of evocations of the name of God, right? So they're always blessing each other in the name of God and greeting each other in the name of the Lord. Um, but there's a sense in which the deity's actions are sort of, um, are sort of limited to, are sort of behind the scenes, right? Limited to, right, the, the harvest, the God is seen as the one who gives grain, um, and also the acts of conception, right, which are parallel from the beginning to the end, right? The, the book starts with barrenness, both of the land and of the women who don't have progeny, they aren't able to conceive. Um, the story ends with the return of fertility of both the fields and also the women, right? And these are seen as sort of the divine acts. But what you get in the middle is the story of these two women, right? Making their way in the world. And that's this um, a pretty profound counter story to a lot of what we see in biblical, um, biblical narratives. Um, if you think about, for example, the, 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 um, the famine, which generates the plot, it sort of like kicks us off. This is the same, um, this is the same thing that 
that um, starts the Abraham stories, right? And the Isaac cycle as well, it's the same language. There was a famine in the land. And so then the question is, what are we gonna do? And if the, the ancestral narratives tend to focus on um, male figures, here the story of Ruth centers on two women. And so um, women readers um, have been quite drawn to this text, of course, for, good, for those good reasons, right? It offers sort of an alternative view and also foregrounds the way in which human action um, is also like linked up with this idea of divine blessing or divine plan, right? It doesn't all work out um, if you don't have these women working together to make it work. And so there's a sense of sort of divine blessing that permeates that, even those very human actions that are right central to the action of the Book of Ruth. Mm. As, uh, and lest people think that like this is some sort of modern concern and ancient people wouldn't have realized this or understood it, Chris, you might be able to help us here, but Ruth shows up in a surprising way in the New Testament, in a way that is even unexpected, right? I mean, uh, can you fill us in a bit on that? Because I am not an expert on that. Yeah, I, I hope that you're talking about the genealogy and math. That's what I was thinking about, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I may be wrong here. I'm, I'm an Old Testament person, sorry. Yeah. That's about the only thing I had in my pocket. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that I can answer the question. That, that yeah, and, and we see it at the end of Ruth. Um, I, you know, I had the, the pleasure this morning of sitting and, and reading Ruth through in one sitting, like you suggested we do, Brennan, and... Um, that that uh, that that Ruth is in the genealogy of David, and uh, is, is therefore Jesus is in the de the genealogy of of Ruth. And uh, Ruth is one of the uh, I think two or three different women mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew's gospel that sort of um, come from questionable you know sort of backgrounds and in, in this case this is a Moabite this is a a non-Israelite woman and uh, as other parts in the the Hebrew Bible make clear uh, these were dangerous people or outsiders or certainly not uh, you know people that you bring home to mom at Thanksgiving uh, and and so that 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 the Gospel of Matthew sort of lifts that up um, as a significant, figure in uh, a female figure in the genealogy of Matthew's gospel says something both about Jesus as well as uh, the gospel's perspective of Mary who sort of has uh, an you know an unexpected or abnormal pregnancy by by all accounts and so which freaks Joseph uh, out in in Matthew too right, right yeah. does freak out freak, freak out Joseph um, and so so it you know it's an interesting uh, set of texts that we we, you know, trace this line. Of course, Luke's gospel has a totally different genealogy uh, that, that, that goes in a different direction, but uh, for the time being, we can just sit with Matthews that, that makes this connection to Ruth um, and, and, and says something then both about Jesus and about Mary, I think, in significant ways. So uh, you mentioned something about Moabite women there. Um, I wonder if we want to uh, mention this as a way of setting the scene for, for Ruth. Um, we don't know when Ruth was written exactly. There are some Aramaic words in there which may, may suggest that it's, or Aramaic-ish words, um, which may suggest that it has kind of a, a late date. Of course, the story of Ruth might have been around a lot earlier. Some folks have argued that it's written before um, the exile. Some folks say after. So we, we, don't, we don't know, and it kind of doesn't matter, right? Uh, um, the story is what the story is. But it does connect in certain really interesting ways to other traditions about women, which also kind of underscore the, the idea of Ruth being a marginal woman and the story focusing on Ruth that is so unique and, and, and perhaps strange within the canon. Um, but what, if, if I was to say Moabite women, um, what does that word, what does that phrase mean uh, biblically? <laughs> well, not good things, as you allude to. <laughs> so there are a few instances, right, in the biblical text, and Moabites are just, they're sort of like the, um, they're sort of like the nasty neighbors, you know, they're the stories about their um, ignominious backgrounds. Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the aftermath of that is Lot and his daughters are um, seeking refuge, and um, Lot's daughters um, get their father pregnant, and um, so that they can bear children, right, so that they won't be um, faced from the face of the earth, right? And the story goes that, that this is where the Moabites and the Ammonites come from, right? So this is very sort of shaming narrative around the actions of, um, in particularly, uh, I mean, it's particularly associated with Moab, but remember too, like these are very close neighbors. The Moabites are like 
right next door, just in the Transjordan. And in fact, like the fact that there's a close relationship among the two peoples is suggested by all of these, by all of these stories that even the story of Lot and his daughters, right? Which is that, oh, there is actually some kind of relationship here between us and them. And so there's kind of a, one sees in the biblical materials an attempt to kind of distinguish, right? Us versus them. We're not really, we, I know we're like them, but we're not really like them, right? There's kind of this um, resistance there within the texts. Um, but notice that when Naomi, when there's a famine in Bethlehem, where does Naomi go? She goes to Moab, right? She hikes across the river and um, into what is a more agriculturally productive region, right? Um, the plains of Moab are actually quite famous for being more um, reliably arable than the, the highlands region mm-hmm. where... Um, uh, where Naomi is. Anyway, so there are these, and, and you have like other traditions as well. In Numbers 25, we get this um, proscription against Moabites ever entering the, the um, assembly, right? And then in Deuteronomy 23 as well, or Deuteronomy 23, excuse me, Numbers 25, we have the no intermixing with Israel, right? Because yeah. uh, with Moabites, I'm sorry. Yeah. In Numbers 25, we have the example of the, um, of the proscription against intermixing, right? Because the intermixing right. with Moabites leads to the worship of foreign gods. Especially right? so the when, women, right? Stay away from the women. It's the, mo- it's, the, it's the mixing with Moabite women, right? So this, like, the, the women are sort of like, you know, I don't know what, like tempting people to go astray religiously. Yeah. Um, and the sexual, the sexual promiscuity or sexual relationship is sort of an emblem of that sort of like religious... Um, religious error as well and then in deuteronomy story yeah we have this like no no moabites or ammonites will be admitted to the assembly so you have on the whole the witness about um moabites and particularly moabite women is like kind of it's like you know don't don't be like that right this is sort of like the counter example and yet you have this text that says hey Lest we think that we can uphold any idea of ethnic purity, right? David himself is from the line of a Moabite woman. And Ruth is sort of becomes the hero of this story. And she's a, she's a Moabite woman. And so Ruth serves as this pretty profound countertext to these other texts in the Bible that help us um, perhaps challenge some of these, um, some of these fear-based texts about inter, intermixing and intermarriage. And you alluded to the setting of the Book of Ruth or the um, potentially the date of the Book of Ruth. And if you think that it's a late text, as many people do, um, Persian period or something like that, then you can think about it in relationship to, for example, the Book of Ezra. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have a lot of fear about intermixing and particularly intermarriage with foreign women, right? Which become very threatening to a threatened nation that seems like it might be on the brink of annihilation, right? So you don't want to, you don't want to lose the sense of identity and cultural continuity. And so intermarriage is a very threatening sort of arrangement. And so if this, if this text, and this is hypothetical, if this text is a, occurring at about the same time as that text, then we have to think about those two things in tension, right? Mm-hmm. You have on the one hand, some strains of tradition that are quite fearful of, um, of Moabites in particular, but then you have a text like Ruth that speaks really powerfully to what it means to welcome the other into one's midst. In fact, to recognize that you yourself are the other, right? If there's, a, if there's anything that that um, genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth does, it's to make that exact move, right? To say, actually, Ruth the Moabite from the fields of Moab, which Ruth says, which the story of Ruth calls her and people call her over and over again. She's not just Ruth, she's Ruth the Moabite. In fact, she's often Ruth the Moabite from the fields of Moab, lest we forget. Yes. <laughs> the text really makes us like see that and hold on to it. And yet at the same, same time, we can't just say she is other because in fact she is, if we're positioned as Israelites, she is us, right? She is she's the ancestress of David, who's the most Israelite of all the Israelite kings. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of complicating that that text, that this text helps us to do in that sense. Um, and uh, before we run out of time, there's one other thing I want to ask you about, and that's the land that you just mentioned from the fields and the land and so on. And your book on Song of Songs does such a great job thinking about geography and land and space. Um, uh, but but in Ruth, you, you mentioned um, a couple of times kind of the agricultural dimension or the land, the kind of eco- ecological dimension. Is there something you want to kind of point out about that dimension of the story um, uh, for us? 
Yeah, well, I think it's one thing. Um, so we talked earlier about assumptions that people bring to the text. And for many of us who don't come from agricultural backgrounds, right, we don't live in in sort of like agrarian <laughs> settlements in the Iron Age or the Persian period or whenever we think this might be, um, we, uh, we might not be keyed in so much to these dimensions. But in fact, if you sort of start attending to the theme of land in the book, you'll notice that um, the story opens with a, a crisis of land, right? A famine in Bethlehem. Um, and it is consistently concerned with the fields. And so you get over and over again, a conversation about or attention to the details of what's happening in the fields. And I think there's a sense of kind of reciprocity there. If the story opens with this question of whether the fields will be able to provide for the people, the story in fact takes us through then a sort of agricultural cycle where they come back to Bethlehem at the time of the um, barley harvest. And then the sort of significant scenes that happen, happen both in the fields and then at the threshing floor, right? These are um, these are agricultural, um, specific agricultural settings. And Ruth sort of eventually being welcomed into the community happens as she's invited ultimately to, to eat, right? To eat with the other workers in the field, to, to work in the field first, to eat with other workers in the field, and then to be given grain by Boaz, a great amount of grain um, at the threshing floor, which is sort of symbolic of the return of fertility that we're seeing building up towards at the end of the story. But the story then ends, interestingly, um, with, as I mentioned earlier, this like um, confluence of fertility, right, between the fertility, agricultural fertility, and then finally the resolution, the fertility of Ruth herself as she um, conceives and gives birth to a son. And it's significant to me, to my eye, in light of all of these themes of, of land that um, the women of the town give the son the name Obed, right? And um, Obed is, uh, is a word that means to serve, right? But it can also mean to work. And so if you think back to Genesis, um, Cain is a tiller, an Obed of the land. Um, yeah. And in fact, in the command in Genesis, the command for human beings is to, um, to keep the earth and to, and to be, it's to be, to, to use the same language, right? Avad, we are to till it, to serve it, right? And so there's this sense that like with, when the story ends, when the story begins, which is with the problem of the, whether the land can provide, it ends with this odd promise that the people will then provide for the land. And in the mix, you get this funny detail that like, um, Naomi herself is in possession of a little parcel of land that also has to be redeemed. I think that there's the question of access to land, um, and not only access to land, but access to fertile, arable land is a key dimension of this story. And I think in our current um, just desperate climatological era of disaster, this issue, I think, should speak to our hearts in a certain way, right? Where the ability of people to eat um, is, is like fundamental, obviously, to our human existence, our human survival, our ability to thrive. Um, it connects us to one another, and it also requires some connection to land. And we don't tend to think and talk in those terms until we're in the most dire of circumstances where those things are taken away. So if you think about California, or the whole West, in fact, right now, um, particularly California and Oregon, and um, the way they've just been rent by these horrible wildfires, um, you think about the dislocation of people from the possibility of a future. It's a profoundly um, ecological reality, right? And I think the Book of Ruth is very sensitive to that. And you can think about that in a lot of different contexts, right? Because we also have um, Ruth's status as an immigrant to take into consideration. And, um, and the text seems to think that the way that um, the way that this economic and ecological reality is resolved is through community, through the actions of communities to welcome and support and sustain one another in mutually caring ways, right? So the story uh, is about Ruth, but it's also very much the story about Naomi. Each chapter starts with the plight of Naomi. And in the end, it's Naomi who is um, the one who actually has the child in, in a sense, oh, right? Yeah, like she's in your lap, yeah. <laughs> that is called Naomi's child, right? A son is born to Naomi, oh. which is fascinating. And so it's through these, I think, community-based and land-based practices that the tensions in the story ultimately become resolved. And to me, that is prof a profound, like, 
paradigm for how we think about the work that communities are doing, the work that the church is doing um, to heal these breaches, to heal these mm -hmm. breaches ecologically, um, to, um, to offer access economically, to care for those who are marginal, um, and also to have this sense of reciprocal care that our very future um, depends on the way that we care as communities for our own landscapes, for the lands that we belong in. And so there's a profound ecological dimension to this yeah. um, economic and community plot as well. That is That's super so much. So much. I mean, I feel <laughs> like so great. it just like opens up Ruth. I read it this morning and now I feel like I didn't see anything. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, That's the great thing about a literary scholar. Yeah. And just see how many times the word field yeah. occurs. Just think yeah. about it. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, that's great. Um, well, we are, we are at our time. We're actually, Elaine, we owe you five minutes of your Sorry, time. Sorry, Elaine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. You can send us a bill. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, Thank you so much for for sharing uh, sharing so much with us about about literature and about poetry and about narrative and then about setting us up uh, for a great study uh, chapter by chapter of the book of Ruth. Uh, so so we are uh, continuing on next week at nine thirty a.m. Uh, Facebook Live or Zoom, and uh, we are looking forward to having another one of Brennan's colleagues. Uh, from Columbia Theological Seminary. Brennan, who's coming with us next week? Kathleen O'Connor, a wonderful biblical scholar and an excellent person and someone who, again, like Elaine, is very interested in uh, literature and the experience of poetry uh, in literary art forms and so on, and someone who really likes short stories. So uh, uh, tune, us, tune in next week uh, for Kathleen O'Connor. Uh, and uh, Elaine, thank you so much uh, for your time and your expertise. Um, and I look forward to seeing everyone else uh, next week. Thanks, Thanks so much. What a pleasure.